Most of us have watched a thunderstorm roll in over the horizon. The dark clouds mount, the sunlight fades, the lightning flashes, and you might even begin to count one one thousand, two one thousand, three one thousand, four one thousand, five one thousand, six one thousand, and then boom, and the sky shakes, and the thunder rumbles by, leaving us awestruck by God's power. We know that the lightning strike makes the thunder inevitable. The Gospel of Luke is like the lightning strike. Luke reported the coming of God's Son to earth, born of a virgin. He tells of Jesus' perfect life, His atoning death, His resurrection on the third day, and then he ends with Jesus' ascension to heaven. But where there's lightning, you will have thunder. And in this case, the reverberant, the reverberations of Christ's death and resurrection have not ceased to impact the world since they occurred. The events recorded in the book of Acts come like the thunderclap following Luke. They are the inevitable result of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, it's true that we find the book of Acts following the Gospel of John in our Bibles, and its placement there makes sense. Acts continues where all four Gospels end with Jesus' resurrection. It also provides the historical setting for understanding the letters, the, 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 the theology and the, and the pastoral guidance that we find in the, the letters of the New Testament. They have a context in mission, which we find in the book of Acts. But it's also clear from the, from the very beginning that Luke, the author of both Luke and Acts, he wants us to read Acts as a continuation of what he began in his gospel. So look with me at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. It reads, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So what do we gather from that introduction? Well, Luke is writing a narrative. It's about things God was accomplishing in history. He builds the narrative on the testimony of eyewitnesses. It's addressed to some fella in high places named Theophilus. And he wrote the narrative to give certainty to his readers. Now flip over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 verse 1 begins this way. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, the book of Acts continues the same story. It's volume 2. Luke is still writing about things God is accomplishing in history. It's still eyewitness testimony. He's still writing to this fellow, Theophilus. He's still writing to give certainty concerning the Christian faith. The key difference is this. The gospel gives certainty about Jesus' mission on earth. And the book of Acts gives certainty 
about Jesus' mission from heaven. You'll see that as we continue reading in verses 1 to 11 of Acts. Let's, let's read that together again. We'll start in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, And said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In these opening verses, Luke provides an introduction to all he plans to develop. He's giving us a framework to to understand the rest of the book, how it fits in with the Bible's storyline, what it entails, what lens we should view. Uh, through which we should view the the forthcoming events. I've attempted to draw verses 1 to 11 to see if we can't get a better idea for what's going on, and Gary Brumley's helped me put this together on the screen. But Luke tells us that he has already dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's part one, the Gospel of Luke, which traces Jesus' incarnation and, and his life his death, uh, his resurrection, and then ends on a briefer account of Jesus' ascension. And all along the way, however, you find throughout the Gospel of Luke that he's connecting everything and tying it in with the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of your Scripture. And then there we get part two, the book of Acts. So the resurrection and the ascension is where the the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts overlap. And in verse 3, we see that the risen Jesus stuck around for a while, 40 days, and he taught the apostles about the kingdom of God. And then integral to the spread of Jesus' kingdom would be the gift of the Holy Spirit, which we see in verses 5 to 8. The Spirit would then empower God's people to be witnesses to the end of the earth, verses 7 to 8 say, and all this would occur until Jesus returned. Verses 10 and 11. Now, I created a diagram to show you how the events in Acts fit within God's greater story. These are not just reports of some new religious sect that sprung out of nowhere. Luke is grounding everything in the sovereign work of God across history to bring his kingdom on earth through Jesus Christ. It's linked with everything he promised in the Old Testament and which is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In his earthly mission, and now we'll see in his heavenly mission. 
I also created it to show you where you fit in to this greater story. You fit in right there. You belong to the new age of the Spirit, where the risen Jesus is advancing His kingdom far and wide. You were made for this. God saved you for this greatness. It doesn't matter if there's ten of you in a mud hut huddled up around a candle and a Bible, or if there's hundreds of you driving across the Metroplex, God's kingdom is on the move. The book of Acts comes to us like Mr. Beaver's words come to Lucy and her siblings in Narnia. They say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he has already landed. Acts says Christ is on the move. He's defeated sin and death. He's the reigning king. And Acts gives us a vision of his unstoppable kingdom advancing on earth. So let's go there together, shall we? All all I want to do today is set before you this this introductory framework for understanding the book of Acts based on verses 1 to 11. And essentially I've boiled it down to one sentence with seven parts. The book of Acts is a historical and theological account of what the risen Jesus is still doing to advance his kingdom through the Holy Spirit, empowering his people to spread the gospel to all nations until he comes again. So let's break that sentence down. I'm answering, what is the book of Acts, according to verses 1 to 11? First, the book of Acts is a historical and theological account. Luke is a historian. Notice the special attention to eyewitness testimony. In verse 3, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And then also we see in verse 9 that the apostles witness his ascension. As, notice the, the emphasis on sight. As they were looking, a cloud took him out of their sight while they were gazing. These are eyewitnesses. Everybody knew in the first century that the most trustworthy historiography was based on the testimony of eyewitnesses. And if you were really good, you wrote your account within living memory of those eyewitnesses. So that while you're writing and publishing your stuff and it's getting passed around, people can go over to those eyewitnesses and did you really say this? Did you really see this? Did you really hear this and touch this? That's precisely the sort of history we find in Acts. The apostles saw, heard, and touched the risen Christ. They saw him ascend. This this plays a crucial role in their gospel preaching and in our gospel preaching. The gospel isn't just an announcement of religious ideas. It's it's not just an announcement of, of personal spiritual discovery, of something we believe to make life easier. Jesus' exalted state isn't just a philosophy to live by. He didn't just rise in our hearts. It's grounded in objective historical reality. Things the apostles discerned with sense perception, seeing, hearing, touching. 
This makes Christianity vastly different from the majority of other religions. All that matters to most religions is whether the experience holds true regardless of historical verification. Christianity is dependent on its historical claims. Acts is a key contributor to those historical claims. Luke is helping Theophilus follow Christianity not just because of subjective experience, but because of it's objectively true. But Luke is also a theologian. He's not just recounting historical events. He also includes details on what those historical events mean in relation to God. And the bulk of the time that we'll see this happening is when Luke is drawing from the Old Testament. And a lot of times it's happening through the speeches of the ones he's, he's uh, uh, recording as the apostles are drawing from the Old Testament. And that Old Test, those Old Testament scriptures are giving meaning and interpreting the events that are actually happening and transpiring. Sometimes it even comes with Luke's own remarks, like in Acts chapter 2 when he says the church is growing. And he doesn't just say it's growing because it's getting popular. He's saying, no, the Lord added to their number. The Lord did it. That's a theological statement. Or later on, Paul sees a vision of someone telling him to come over to Macedonia. And Luke says, immediately, we, so now he's together with Paul, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. In other words, Luke isn't just reporting the way the early church understood history playing out, but the early church's testimony has become his own. He too has come to accept God's involvement in history. He rejects the philosophical assumption that miracles just can't happen. Rather, God is involved in history. Everything is playing out just like the Old Testament says. Just look at what Christ is doing in the church. That gives these events meaning, divine meaning. One of the main thrusts of that divine meaning is what the risen Jesus is still doing. That's part two of our sentence. What the risen Jesus is still doing. Look carefully at verse 1. He says in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. All that Jesus began to do. And teach. Meaning Luke's gospel was just the beginning. Acts is what Jesus continues to do and teach. I once had a professor ask me this question on the book of Acts. Acts of the apostles, Acts of the Holy Spirit, Acts of Jesus Christ. Please explain. What was he forcing me to deal with? He was forcing me to deal with the star of the book. Jesus Christ. Sometimes we, we read the Bible as if Jesus did his thing and now the church is doing her thing. Jesus did his part, now we're doing our part. Jesus is the main character in Luke, but the church is the main character in Acts. No, Luke is saying Jesus is the main character regardless of what side of the resurrection you're on. So as we continue reading Acts, be watching for how the risen Jesus is still Working. So, for example, you know, we get to Acts chapter 2. What is he doing? He's the one pouring out the Holy Spirit from heaven. He's the one adding to their number. 
He's the one granting repentance and forgiveness in Acts 5. He's the one who stops Paul in his tracks on the Damascus roads and converts him. He opens the heart of Lydia to believe the gospel. And you know what? Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Jesus is still risen, and He's still working His purposes in the world. He didn't take a break after the apostles died. He's just as active today as He was then. The problem is with our vision. The risen Jesus is central to everything that happens in Acts, and He's central to everything that happens with us. That's why we're saved to begin with. It's not that we just figured it out one day. No, Jesus saved us. He's our life. He's the foundation for our church. He's why we meet together. He's why we love each other. He makes the mission we have not just possible, but certain. Oh, He's still doing work. He's still advancing His kingdom, which leads to a third observation. The risen Jesus is advancing God's kingdom on earth. Verse 3 says that Jesus, he taught his apostles about the kingdom of God for 40 days. And uh, we don't have to wonder what Jesus taught them, because we have it in the New Testament. Now, since Acts is part 2 of Luke's gospel, we would expect that Luke has drawn attention to this kingdom of God before. The kingdom of God is is an Old Testament hope. It has to do with God establishing His rule on earth and bringing peace to the chaos and healing for all that's broken and good wherever there's evil. But that hope was tied to a person, uh, to this one king who would come and sit on the throne of David. A throne that was forever. Well, Jesus, the first thing happens in Luke's gospel is is Jesus is is about to enter the picture. The angel comes to to Mary. He says, you're going to have a child, and this child is going to sit on the throne of David. His kingdom is going to be forever. And when Jesus starts his earthly ministry, then we we see Luke calling attention to to the fact that Jesus, he, he comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he starts healing people and casting out demons to prove that his kingdom, it reverses that all all the fall undid. That his kingdom restores all that sin ruined. The kingdom has in fact come near because the king has come near in Christ. Luke chapter 10 and 11. The way he takes his kingdom though, we find once we get to the end, closer to the end of the book of Luke, uh, Gospel of Luke, the way he takes his kingdom isn't through military power, but by giving up his life on the cross and rising from the dead. The cross is where he defeats the power of sin and death that has such a stronghold on those he loves and on those he will make part of his kingdom. The book of Acts picks up that same storyline from Luke 
a bit further by pointing us to Jesus' ascension into heaven. The apostles watched this happen in verse 9. He was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Where did he go? I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 32. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Look with me now at Acts chapter 7, verse 56. This is right as Stephen is about to be martyred. Acts chapter 7, verse 56. He gazes up into heaven. What does he behold? He says, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Where did Jesus go? To sit at God's right hand as king. The king has taken his throne to rule forever over the kingdom of God. The king is in the place of authority to establish his final rule on earth without fail. Death always terminates the reign of earthly rulers. Name one earthly ruler that death has not conquered. Jesus Christ is the sole ruler who conquered death itself, and that qualifies him to sit on God's throne as king, and nobody can stop his kingdom from advancing. No matter who's in power, Trump, Putin, Kim Jong-un, all of them are under the sovereign reign of Jesus Christ and can do nothing without his permission. They will all die. Jesus Christ's kingdom will never die. It will never fade. It will win and succeed. But how, we must ask, does his kingdom advance? If he's in heaven. That brings us to the fourth part of our summary sentence. The kingdom advances through the Holy Spirit. Kingdom advances through the Holy Spirit. Jesus' teaching on the kingdom And the gift of the Spirit leads the disciples to ask him a question about the kingdom. We see it in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, some have said that Jesus' answer is a rebuke for their nationalistic interests. While they should be thinking about mission to the Gentile nations. Another view is that his answer postpones Israel's national restoration and instead focuses their attention on a church age. So, in both of these views, Jesus is either postponing Israel's blessing until some future time or rejecting its restoration in the present. But I think both interpretations miss the mark a bit. The disciples are asking a legitimate question based on what Jesus said about the Spirit and the Kingdom in verses 3 and 5. 
And Jesus then refers to Israel in his answer by pointing out the Spirit's work in Jerusalem and in Judea. Verse 8. And we mustn't forget that the Old Testament hope for Israel's restoration in the kingdom came with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we'll see more of this when we get to chapter 2 in Joel when Peter quotes Joel. So it doesn't seem to me that Jesus is eluding their question or rejecting it. He's answering it. Israel's restoration begins when the Holy Spirit of Christ comes and makes them a new people and makes them that light for the nations that they always should have been. Makes them witnesses to Christ, which brings up, fifthly, the disciples' role in the advance of Christ's kingdom. The disciples' role in the advance of Christ's kingdom. Christ advances His kingdom through the Spirit, empowering His people. His point in verse 7 is not to worry about the times or seasons that God has fixed by His own authority. The the chronological development of end-time events are in God's hands. Here's where your focus needs to be. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. The prophet Isaiah not only looked to a day when Israel would be restored by the Spirit, for example, Isaiah 32, 15, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and that's exactly what Jesus was saying was going to happen in Luke 24, until you are clothed with power on high. And he's talking about the same thing here in Acts chapter 1. Isaiah not only looked to a day when Israel would be restored by the Spirit, Isaiah looked to a day when Israel would become as witnesses to the nations. Isaiah 43, verse 12, you are my witnesses. Or Isaiah 49, verse 6, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation might reach to the end of the earth. Same phrase we find here in Luke, in Acts chapter 1. Both of these promises, the Spirit coming and the, and the, and the, 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 the people of God going out as witnesses to the nations... They are coming together in Jesus' words to the apostles. When the Spirit comes, He will transform them into witnesses. Everything good that happens to the church and in the church and through the church in Acts is the result of Jesus' Spirit indwelling His people. You will see things, if you read the book of Acts, you will see things the Spirit is doing in the people like bringing unity and joy and generosity and even comfort But one of the primary focuses in Acts is how the Spirit empowers the church to then speak boldly on behalf of Christ. Every time He comes upon people, they start blessing God and opening their mouths about Jesus and celebrating their salvation. Some of us confess fears in personal evangelism. Fears, perhaps, in stepping into a new ministry role. Apathy in reaching out to neighbors. The Spirit is able, brothers and sisters. Plead with God to fill you. This is the same Spirit that was hovering over the surface of the deep at the beginning in Genesis 1 through which God created the universe. This is the same Spirit that helped Moses lead God's people through the wilderness. 
Same spirit that inspired prophets to speak God's word. Same spirit that raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. Same spirit that regenerated your dead heart. And He indwells you if you're in Christ. The crucial question is, are we depending on Him? Are we looking to Him for strength? Do we want more of Him? David Platt writes, It's dangerously possible to carry on with means and programs of our church and to do them all smoothly and not to realize that the Holy Spirit was absent from the process. We have made a deadly mistake. I am convinced the greatest hindrance to the advancement of the gospel to the nations may be the attempt of the church of God to do the work of God apart from the Spirit of God. Are we as the church dependent on ourselves or are we desperate for His Spirit? The kingdom spreads through the Spirit. Without Him, our programs and ministry structures and care groups and fellowships, they mean nothing. But with Him, the church will spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's our sixth point. We spread the gospel to all nations. To all nations. That's plain from verse 8. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea. And in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Don't miss this. The Holy Spirit has a missionary character. I mean, He fills people and they go out. They just can't help it. He comes in, they go out. He's the true missionary in the book of Acts. We see here that God doesn't send His people without going with His people. He fills them and they go and tell. And verse 8 tells us the extent of His mission to the end of the earth. This is programmatic. You miss this, you miss some of the, uh, the major thrust in the book of Acts. Because He just gave you an outline of what's about to happen when the Spirit fills the church. So in chapter 2, at Pentecost, the Spirit comes upon the people in Jerusalem. Right? And the apostles start witnessing in Jerusalem. And the Lord is adding to their number. And then you get over to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And it says, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered... Throughout the regions of, uh, get this, Judea and Samaria. Except for the apostles. And what did they end up doing? Chapter 8, verse 4 says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Then, that lasts till chapter 12. And out from Judea and Samaria, in chapters 13 to 28, we get Paul's missionary journeys from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum until we're left hanging at the end of the book of Acts with these words, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Point being, this is where you, this is where you and me pick up. This is where the Spirit leads you and me to pick up where the early church left off. Some of you are familiar with the church planning network called Acts 29. There is no Acts 29 in your Bibles. That's the point. 
We are all continuing the mission to the end of the earth. That means to the very end of the inhabited world. This has a geographical dimension to it. So pay attention to the place names when you read the book of Acts. They're not just there for decoration. I mean, if you read volume 1, the Gospel of Luke, and volume 2, Acts together, what you see is everything honing in on Jerusalem. Christ dies, the King is risen, He's seated and thrown, everything blasts out from His city. Missions to the world. There's a theological point in the geography of Luke and Acts. To the end of the earth also has an ethnic dimension to it. He mentions Samaria. And quite offensively, pairs it with Judea. That didn't compute with Jews. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. That's what we learned with Jesus when he's at the woman, with the woman at the well. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus is crossing that barrier. To a Jew, a Samaritan was a racial half-breed and political rebel, to put it nicely. But the Spirit takes the gospel across ethnic boundaries. All peoples would hear because all people need to be saved and all people have the same need. Jesus Christ. Jesus, in, in, the, in, in Luke 13, He said that people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. You know what people He's talking about. If we use modern day geography, people from Jordan, people from Syria, people from Saudi Arabia and Egypt reclining at table in the kingdom of God. The gospel had to go out from Jerusalem, the city of the king, to the rest of the world, and that gospel rescues people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It gives them forgiveness and brings them under the rule of the risen Christ. This was the plan all along. This was the plan. Look at Jesus' words in Luke 24. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Because I'm about to show you what your Bibles are about in total from Jesus' words in Luke 24. Luke 24, verse 45. It says, Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. You want to understand the Scriptures? You get these two points in your mind. And He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Do you hear what He's saying? We cannot read our Bibles apart from Jesus being the center and missions being the overflow. Risen Christ, 
Global missions, they go together. They are inseparable. There's no such thing as a risen Christ who doesn't win the nations he died to save. How does he do it? The Spirit empowering you to take the gospel to the end of the earth. The Spirit empowering you to lay hold of every opportunity to promote the gospel's advance to the end of the earth. Whether that's at a grocery store, checkout line, or in a refugee camp. Whether at a nearby school, so Brent and Takia and Mordechai, Michael, whether that's at a nearby school or an orphanage in Haiti, whether it's tucking a child in at night and reading a psalm to him when he is afraid, or sending one off to North Korea someday, every opportunity to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. The bloody cross and the empty tomb mean there's a multitude of people from all nations who will repent and who will follow Jesus when they hear Him proclaimed. Death and resurrection of Christ means anyone from anywhere, no matter what they've done, can have their sins forgiven. God has not only been faithful to send His Son to die in your place, He's not only been faithful to vindicate Jesus by raising Him from the dead, He's been faithful to spread the message of repentance and forgiveness to all nations. That's what He started with the apostles. That's what He's doing right now through you and me. I was amazed when we went to Turkey, Andy and I, and and just talking to the people on the streets who have been for years oppressed by Islam. And they're looking for answers. They're looking for something, for an alternative to this oppression. And they know. They read the the Gospels and they know. That's my answer. When they find it. Who's going to tell them? From Afghanistan... Libya, Sudan, India, the Congo, your workplaces, playgrounds, grocery stores, family functions, people on your street, refugees in this city. Don't miss what's going on right now. It is the risen Christ who is advancing His kingdom by the Holy Spirit through you, through us. God doesn't need us, but He amazingly is choosing to use us for the mission. So how are you involved? Or perhaps we should ask a more fundamental question. If we're not involved... How filled with the Spirit can we say we truly are? The Spirit's role is to magnify Jesus among all peoples through our words. Do we have this urge like we see in the Apostle Paul in Romans 11 where he says, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Somehow, i got to do something. Somehow, I've got to act and work and think and pray and strategize and give to save some of them. That's the kind of thinking 
The Spirit of God compels in His people. Not fear-mongering, not self-preservation, not how can I be safe, but how can I go? How can I get them the Gospel? How can I win them to Christ? We must pray for the Spirit to change us into this kind of people and compel us to carry the Gospel far and wide, beginning where we live. And we do so until Jesus comes again. That's the last part of our sentence. We do so until Jesus comes again. What did the angels say in verse 11? Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. They're left with the expectation of Jesus' return. Jesus' return gives the mission a context, doesn't it? Yeah, a context in that He's coming to win, to, to, to finally save us and bring us together with Himself. It also gives us a context of pending judgment. If the King is returning, then it's imperative to respond to His message of salvation now. Why should you respond? Why should your non-believing friends respond We'll take it from the words of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17, verse 31. God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given us assurance to all by raising Jesus from the dead. You see, judgment motivates us to have compassion on those who do not yet know Christ. They have no way of escape escaping judgment without Him. And more importantly, they will not get to enjoy Christ's glory. They will be cut off from it. Unless they hear, unless they believe the gospel that we have, then they'll get to enjoy the light of His countenance. Our role is to build our witness on the apostles' Objective witness to Jesus. And then to keep rescuing people until the King returns. That's what the book of Acts is about. It's a historical and theological account of what the risen Jesus is still doing to advance His kingdom on earth through the Holy Spirit, empowering His people to take the gospel to the ends of the earth until He returns. Till he comes again. This is where we live. Some of you have seen the movie Hitch. Will Smith's trying to teach that guy how to dance. He says, no, no. This is where you live, right? This is where you live. This is where you live, Christian. This is where you live. Let this book, as we're going through it, determine the rhythm of your dance. A church who patterns our life around the risen Jesus' agenda to advance His kingdom on earth. That's, that's where we want to be. That's who we want to be. Let's pray together.